Hello and welcome to Coming Home Network Presents. Uh, and this is a series of what we hope will be lots and lots of great conversations about the kinds of questions that people wrestle with when they're exploring the Catholic Church and wondering if they should become part of it. Uh, I'm Matt Swaim, Outreach Manager for the Coming Home Network, and it is my privilege to facilitate these conversations. And if you're someone dealing with issues like the ones we're talking about today, uh, please do come visit us at chnetwork.org. And especially if you're looking for support from others who are going through the same kinds of things you're going through or who have been through the same kinds of things that you're going through, please check out our online community. That's community.chnetwork.org. And today we get to tackle a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, um, something I wrestle with deeply in my journey to the Catholic Church, and that is um, the the extraordinarily pressing topic of what in the world was I supposed to do with my Protestant library once I became Catholic. Uh, some of you are, who are watching this are going through this dilemma right now or perhaps have gone through it. If any cradle Catholics happen to be watching this, you might think this is a very, very weird thing to be upset about. Uh, but hopefully by the end of things, you'll be able to empathize uh, a little bit with the dilemma. And fortunately, I can think of no two gentlemen better equipped to reflect upon this problem uh, than the ones I've invited on the program today. Uh, Sean McAfee comes from an evangelical Protestant background. He's written for Catholic Answers and the National Catholic Register and more. Uh, Andrew Pettiprin is Fellow of Popular Culture for Word on Fire, the Word on Fire Institute. Before that, he was an Episcopal priest, and both of these men have gotten rid of more books than most people own. So, Andrew and Sean, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. So, I... I want to start uh, by talking with you, Sean, because you wrote an article for the Register, uh, basically saying, "Here's some criteria. Here's how I think about it." And without going into the entire thing, if you could just lay out um, what kind of an issue it was for you when you became Catholic to look at your Protestant library, and what were some of the criteria you went through when you were deciding what to keep and what to toss. Right. Yeah. So I converted back in 2012, and uh, whenever I would look at my library, I was maybe proud of it. Right. I had a lot of resources and, and, and a lot of things to probably think about. A lot of NIV Bibles, um, a lot of apologetics from that side of, of the, of the river and, and also a lot of atheist books as well. Um, so I had a plethora of probably what I would say were resources, but wasn't quite sure what to do. I shelved them for a while, literally. Um, and then I moved overseas and a lot of stuff went into storage. And I had not seen that until about seven years later, a deployment and an overseas tour later. I, I finally got a hold of these books and I was like, wow, there are way more than I thought. And we're not just talking about all the you know, apologetics books that I was kind of looking forward to re-thumbing through, maybe for some writing content, you know, inspirational stuff. But there were a lot of like dating books and, and, and other things oh. that I had from, from yeah, a get very, those, get those out of there, man. A lot of, yeah, and, and, okay, so we'll get to that, but there were a, there were a heavy mix of things that I had just forgot that I even owned. Um, and they were from a mix of secular and, uh, I, I will say, you know, Protestant resources, very popular, uh, resources, a lot of audio books too, um, but especially those NIV Bibles. And that's really where I was like, well, I don't need all of these. I certainly don't want to, you know, I don't know. You know, just give them to the wrong person. I was met with a lot of dilemmas, which I'm sure we'll get to here, you know, and uh, was, you know, unsure. I, I consulted some folks and, of course, my wife prayed about it and made a decision. <laughs> that always has to be part of the factor. I remember when my wife and I got married, one of the things we had to do was we had to figure out which of our copies of like the Br Brothers Carry Motsoff we were going to keep. 
um, right. you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Andrew, uh, I can see from the library behind you, you got rid of absolutely nothing when you moved from Nashville to Texas. Uh, right. Have you had to go through this kind of a purge? Oh, yeah, for sure, Matt. You know, in my case, though, I... Um, I, I, I think in some ways my purging of my library was like if somebody had been watching closely over the course of about five or six years before I came into full communion with the Catholic Church, they might have been able to guess that that's what I was going to do because my library was sort of turning over over the last few years, sort of weeding out some of the specifically Anglican and Protestant things. Um, for a while, I had a bit of an Orthodox library going because, ooh, maybe, might be, might be thinking in that direction. And then, no, you know, little by little reading more and more and more about the papacy and like all kinds of other things. And so more and more Catholic books are creeping in, including things like, if you can see right behind me, things like biblical commentaries. You know, I have these Protestant ones right here, which I, which I still have, but then I have a Catholic set below it. And increasingly in my ministry, when I was an Episcopal priest, I was dipping into those Catholic commentaries and sort of trying to find out what, you know, what Catholics were thinking about certain scriptural passages so that I could preach kind of the Catholic way, even as I was still very much uh, in the Protestant world. So yeah, over the years, I've gotten rid of a lot. I had a lot of like evangelical books. I had a lot of very practical ministry type books as well. Some of those I gave away to some of my friends who are still ministering in a Protestant context. Some of them I've kept because they just have good, you know, good content that can be applied even in the Catholic world. But uh, yeah, it's painful, but it's also kind of liberating, you know, to 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 refresh one's library to reflect uh, the new state of things. Well, what one thing that, you know, I wrestled with, I'm curious on both your takes on this, is that there were certain books in my library, and there are all kinds of different categories of this, but um, I mean, this is probably the easiest ones, you know, that you want to get rid of, things that like are, you know, the theology does not apply, and in some cases, it's very bad theology. Um, it's a bad book. Um, but you don't want to just give it to goodwill, right? Because what's going to happen is someone else is going to pick up that book and be formed in a really bad way. Um, I, I gotta say, I just like chucked those, man. I like put them straight in the trash. I, I felt bad when I was doing it. I was like, I felt like, you know, one of these like fascist regimes that like, you know, tries to seize books and like dispose of them. But, but I was like, I, I don't want to get, I don't want to get really horrible theology and just float it back out there in the world for someone else to get bad ideas from. Yeah, no, I, I felt the exact same way. And that was probably what my major dilemma was, was wouldn't I rather, I asked myself, wouldn't I rather go find the Catholic side of these answers, you know, within theology or within apologetics or something else. And wouldn't I want to give that to somebody instead? Of course, I don't have, you know, I wasn't formulating an initiative for that, but wouldn't that be the, the adequate response? But then I started to think, you know, I mean, whenever, whenever an apologist and I do, I do a lot of apologetics, I do a lot of saints, do a lot of evangelization writing. Um, Whenever, whenever I get an idea for something that needs to be addressed, it often comes from reading a Protestant source or an atheist source or something else, a secular source. And that is the main, you know, piece of, uh, piece of, uh, information that I'm using to base my arguments from, to base my reasoning from, and to, to draw, to draw any Catholic conclusions from. Of course, I'm going to supplement it with the church's teaching every time. But if I need to say, Hey, look, uh, you know, Protestants often say this. I can say, no, author so and so says this. And that, you know, so I, so 
rather than kind of throw them, you know, I, and I'll tell you this in just a second, rather than kind of give the, be worried about giving them away, there were a number of them that I decided to keep in order to, you know, serve the, the, those purposes in the future. But I'll tell you this, man, maybe this didn't cross your mind, but I was thinking, you know, and I think I said in the, it literally, I did say it in the, the article at the register, but I literally was thinking, hey, man, do I need to destroy these? Because you just see, rather, rather than give them to goodwill, I mean, there were some books, these horror of Babylon Catholic Church kind of books where I'm thinking, this doesn't even deserve to be in my library. I'll probably never use it. It's just trash. And I was thinking, should I, should I destroy it? <laughs> destroy it! Right? Uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, um, rather than la- letting it infect somebody else and just, you know, create, collect dust on my, my shelf. Those are my, so my here, here we go. You've just given me the inspiration for Mount Doom Ministries. And what we're going to do <laughs> is we're going to reclaim you know, all these things and, and figure out a way to drop them in. But Andrew, was that your dilemma too, or? Somewhat. You know, in my case, I had a lot of books that I had accumulated over the years that were given to me by parishioners or by friends or, you know, like, so I had sort of in my in my old office, I had kind of just a stack over in the corner of things people had given me, but I, I really didn't feel like I could throw it away because it was a gift. And, you know, I, I kind of felt like sooner or later somebody would ask me if I'd read it and at least I'd be able to say, I still have it. You know, I, I haven't gotten around yeah. to it yet or something, you know. Oh. Yeah, but, you're yeah, in a different in the, situation because you're a pastor, right? Yeah. And, you know, funnily enough, even though I was an Episcopal priest, you know, it was it was those kinds of, you know, kind of odd theology of 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 the end times and like, you know, books like that that people would give me for some reason, you know. And, um, you know, sometimes I would take a look at them. But, yeah, I have to tell you, uh, some of them I did just I did just pitch away because I, I just didn't feel comfortable, uh, you know, giving giving them away or trying to sell them or something. That having been said, I, I also think there is a strange way in which bad books can can create a kind of rebellion within somebody who reads them to take them in the opposite yeah, direction. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like, maybe you put the worst argument for a position out there and suddenly people read like... Yeah, I have this idea with like certain aspects of the culture. Like I want them to just get as bad as possible so people will see like the natural end of them. Like you just leave like Jack Chick out there and you're like, people are like, well, obviously this isn't true about the Catholic Church. You know, you just, I, yeah, yeah. I wondered that same thing. My mother had a book on her shelf called Christ Returns by 1988. That was a joke that we had in our, do you have it? You're kidding me. Uh-oh. You have it. You have it. This there. was going to be part of my lightning round later, but. Um, you have got to be kidding me. Holy there it smokes. Is. I think my mom's looked a little different from that. But it was one of those books that I just thought this is just patently absurd for one reason was I read it after 1988. So, you know, it, I, got, I got to thinking to myself, maybe, you know, maybe it's a little more complicated than fortune telling, right? And those are those are the kind of books like I have some early American literature um, and even even in the 1960s and 50s, like like whenever Kennedy was uh, whenever Kennedy was running for president, I have little pamphlets I bought on eBay that talk about you know how bad the Catholic Church is, just to just to kind of you know reference later, but also it's a piece of history. You know, when you look at a book like that, yeah. it, it is it is somewhat valuable to me to say, look at how deep the arguments go. They're not just modern; they are old. I mean, even in the 80s, it's hard to believe that that was now like 30. You know, can I get math right? 40 years ago. You know, the early <laughs> and to think, hey, look, you know, if you can even reach back 40 years before that or even 140 years before that. And these are problems that are persisted in our country and our culture. Yeah. So um, I, I'm going to do this with a few books later on. I have some in my library that I want you to evaluate and tell me what you think that you would do with them. <laughs> if They were your books. But but at the top of the list was going to be Edgar Wisenant's, um The Rapture, 1988 and 88 Reasons Why. 
Send it um, to me. I want to read wow. it. <laughs> no, this is my. It's mine. My own. My okay. My precious. Um, I feel like we've got way too many Gollum references in the first part of the show. Yeah. So he said his idea was going to be on uh, the rapture was going to take place on Rosh Hashanah, except in his um, renderings, it's Rosh Hash Anna. Oh so uh, that's what's going to happen. And the first like, actually, you know what? The whole book is in all caps. I'm dead serious. <laughs> so it's a serious book. Um, you have to read it like you're yelling. It's a serious book. But, you know, I, I wonder, though, because, Sean, you brought up dating books, um, and, you know, those are the kind of things that I would be much more cautious about putting them out in the world, mostly because, and I don't know, I mean, we're all around a similar age group, but I know that in the 80s and 90s especially, even into the early 2000s, there was some really kind of, um, there's been some toxic fallout from purity culture and the way that evangelicals kind of, like, talked about um human sexuality let's just say i don't think any of us were raised in anything even remotely resembling theology of the body and you know some of the dating resources and some of the you know resources on male and female just um i would be very hesitant about putting some of those back out in the world yeah and that's those are the first ones that we eliminated me and my wife and and thank god she she's very you know, socially educated in that kind of thing especially way before i was you know she would recommend books and then we both converted to the Catholic Church after getting married. But before that, she would recommend books. And now we look back, and it's, she used the exact same word. It was very toxic theology to make you feel bad about yourself, to basically shun away anything. And that purity culture, you know, has a great intent and a place, but um, not to the degree that a lot of those authors back in, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years ago did. The culture was just smacked of toxicity and, and it still does. And those were very poisonous. And like you said, they didn't, they, they didn't even talk about the right, right topics to do with the body because the body is not a, a piece of evil. This isn't, you know, Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there, there is something good to talk about with those things. So yeah, we definitely, in a way, I won't tell you what we did, but we, we trashed a lot of those. That's okay. I think we all can read between the lines here. So. <laughs> I mean, Andrew, is there any stuff that you were just like, I can't put this out back in the world? Yeah. For me, it was actually coming from my 18 years as an Anglican and about 10 years as an Episcopal priest. I had accumulated a number of kind of books of more liberal Anglican theology, like people like John Shelby Spong and, um, uh, you know, people sort of, sort of in that vein, sort of the, not because I liked them or appreciated them, but just because it was the kind of thing that was floating around in the world that I lived in. I went to a, you know, an ecumenical divinity school, um, liberal Protestant divinity school. We had to read all kinds of different things or different books were just kind of floating around that I had brought into my library. And those were definitely books that I thought, I don't want these. I don't want to see these on the on on a, the shelf of a used bookstore. I, I don't think that it'll serve any purpose to to float these out there. So those were the kinds of things that I tended to get rid of that I had accumulated over the years. All right, shifting gears. What about the Bibles? Because I don't know about you. Um, I have so you can't see, but like the bottom two shelves are just basically Bibles behind me. <laughs> I have tons of them. Uh, and most of them only have 66 books in them. Um, and some of them are translations that um, are deeply problematic. Uh, I've kept them for my own reasons, but I wonder if you had any kind of evaluation system for like which Bibles you keep. I mean, I, Sean, you said NIV, you didn't say NIV, you said NIVs plural. So I didn't know if you had an issue here. It's a very popular translation, you know, and and it's one that was easily, I'll just say, copy and pasteable into any sort of um, format that a, a particular Protestant Bible was going after. One of my favorites that I like to talk about is the Archaeological Bible. 
It's an NIV, it uses an NIV translation, but one of the remarkable things about this Bible is it, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it talks about archaeological digs, you know, since, uh, let's, let's say the 1800s, 1700, uh, seven, yeah, 1700s, all the way up to, to recent times, you know, past the modern Dead Sea Scrolls excavations. And, and it talks about how really the Bible is not just historical. I mean, or, or it, it is historical, but it's also, you know, a lot of these things that are discussed in the Bible. These are still places that we are, you know, coming to understand what life was like. I mean, how many life in the times of Jesus books are there? And they are some of the coolest books. Well, now we, you know, understanding those even more. Um, I mean, just recently we understood, we understand better where, where Herod lived. Herod the Great, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, and where Jesus was, was really counseled in front of the, um, you know, before his crucifixion. Those are cool things to, to think of during Lent. And, but, um, more, I guess to more get to the point of the, the subject here is what, what were some of the, what was some of the criteria that I had? I think the Bible had to be useful. Um, you know, there had to be something other than the translation. Um, one of them was a gift from my dad whenever I was baptized, uh, maybe mm-hmm. seven, eight years old. Definitely holding on Yeah, that on changes to that the one. game. Anything like that, or like, you know, ones that you have gold embossed, like your actual name right. on it. Yep. You know? Yeah. Uh, my wife gave me one before we got married. That was a message Bible. You know, you've heard of the message translation. Of course, it's like a super quick read. It's, it, it's not quite comic book, but, uh, you know, the things that my kids might like, but, um, it's a paraphrasing. Um, from Nav Press, and those, you know, not just because it was a gift, but you know, it just holds a sentimental value. And uh, but otherwise, if it if it didn't fall into those categories, I probably gave it away. Of course, I would never probably throw a Bible in the trash. It still is God's word, even if it's not the complete canon. It doesn't include the Deuterocanonicals. Um, I would have given it. I think I gave those to like uh, friends or or in laws or something like that. Yeah, Andrew, did you have to re- deal with any uh, of that? Not too much. I have to say, I had probably fewer Bibles, I suppose, than than either of you guys. Maybe I had. A, well, you were an Episcopalian, so. Well, I I, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I, I was an evangelical before that, and I had a, I had a, a King James Bible that I had had from the time that I was a little a little kid that I still have. I had an NIV Bible that I had as a teenager that I still have, and then the other Bibles that I have are just ones I accumulated uh, over the years, and I still have those too. So. Um, it, it, I, I don't. I don't think that was that was a problem for me getting rid of Bibles. But I, it does pain me a little bit when I go to a used bookstore and I see so many Bibles. I think to myself, how did these things end up here? Who is selling their Bibles? What is going on with these people? You know, uh, or you know, throwing them away even worse. But but selling them too. Leave, I, leave them strange. in hotel rooms. <laughs> right. Give them away. Just put them somewhere. Do something with them. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, and, and I had extra criteria I applied on top of that. You know. So, for instance. Um, you know, there are certain ones that I've like underlined, like in, in high school, there was a particular leather bound NIV that just I underlined and I put dates by, by some things, you know, when I, when certain things hit me a certain way and little side notes in the margins and there's no way that that's going anywhere right. as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. And, you know, there's the, there's the question about, you know, well, you know, 66 books versus the full canon. And, you know, Marcus Grodi solved this because he had his old preacher's Bible. And you guys saw this when you guys were each on the journey home. That Bible on his desk, which is like completely beaten to smithereens, is his old preaching Bible. And he he uses that primarily because he remembers he can open up to certain passages and remember what side of the page and how far down a certain verse is. Right. And to solve the problem of the uh, incomplete canon, he just had a binder stitch the extra books of the deuterocanon you know the apocrypha into the rest of the bible so 
there's your workaround. And uh, I think I think that touches on home. the kind of the other side of that subject too, Matt. Is not only maybe I won't be able to recognize my handwriting from back then, but just like my notes. You know, the moments I would, like you said, something hit me. Maybe I was reading through the 150 Psalms for the first time and had a lot of copious underlines and, you know, notes in the margin. I think even it, those hold some value. So even those Bible commentaries from Protestants, honestly, hold a lot of value. Um, they might not explain the full theology. Um, and I'll always go back to, let's say, an RSVCE commentary. You know, St. Joseph's Bible is one of my favorite. It has commentary on nearly every verse, verse in the Bible. But even even going back to some of my Protestant Bibles, you know, I'll even go in there and, and they express a level of, um, they express a level of, uh, I suppose, what's the right word here? Um, inspiration. That, that a lot of, you know, Catholic Bibles are missing and it doesn't affect the theology, the, th- the theological truths that the Catholic Church presents. So I have another category of question uh, related to this. Um, are there any books that you held on to that were written by Protestants, but they were so formative in steering you towards the Catholic Church as a Protestant book that there is absolutely no way that book was going anywhere? Um, I'll start with mine. Show and tell. Um, it would have to be Mind of the Maker by Dorothy L. Sayers. Um, a big part of my journey was trying to understand, uh, as a Christian musician, you know, what makes music glorifying to God? What makes art glorifying to God? What is the, how does the way that God is, you know, structured in the Trinity show us who we are as human beings and as, as artists. And that formed me in a lot of ways that really kind of steered me in a sacramental direction without me realizing that was what was happening. And I still go back to this book all the time, even though Dorothy herself was an Anglican, although I maintain that if she were alive today, she'd be Catholic. But I wonder if there are any books like, uh, Andrew, did you have any books um, or keep any books around that were so formative for you, uh, even though they were written by Protestants, that they sort of steered you in a Catholic direction? Yeah, I have a lot of books like that on my shelf. And to be honest, I just consider this to be, you know, part of this, like, you know, part of the gifts that are, are to be shared by, by people who really are possessing certain marks of, of sanctification outside the visible bonds of the bounds of the Catholic Church. I mean, obviously for me, somebody like C.S. Lewis, I mean, C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis's books will always be not only on my shelf, but I feel like that's the off. free space on this bingo card is the C.S. Lewis yeah. space, maybe okay. N.T. Wright. You know, yeah. but like, yeah, there are some others in my life too. I mean, um, you know, William Law's "A Serious Call to the Devout and Holy Life" is a book that I that I will always want to use. Um, a book like Richard Baxter's "Reformed Pastor." I don't know if you know that book, but um, I, I love that book. I mean, it's a very valuable book not only for people who are in ministry, but um, it it outlines something like what would become the small group movement. You know, so there's a lot of like really good kind of stuff that we can use as Catholics, you know? Um, so there are books like that. There are also, um, you know, yeah, certainly N.T. Wright, Rowan Williams, you know, kind of d- deeper theological works like that for me are are super important and, and will always stay with me. Sean, you got any books like that? There was, there's one that comes, and you, you took mine, of course, C.S. Lewis, you know, he dominates the top, the the one in particular, The, long, the Longest Night, or, or, you know, any collection of his essays are, Super good, but one that one one actually probably controversial one that I really enjoy. You said was it formative? It kind of led me closer in my journey to the Catholic Church. It'd be the Shack, 
Uh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. The shack, honestly. Yeah. Is that in your collection? <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> it, 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 if it was, it's, uh, it might be in the ash heap behind a house I used to live in. So. Now, of course, that, that book presents like, you know, numerous theological problems with the Trinity, but I mean, I can think of no greater fictional work in that part of my life that really had helped me to understand, let's say, the problem of suffering or, or the problem of evil or God's intense love for us. The author there just really nailed it on the head, and it'll always it'll always stick out as one of those things that really brought me closer to Jesus. Well, it's weird that you say that because it's such a you know, it's obviously not a work of orthodox theology, <laughs> right? Um, and there are plenty of uh, things like that were not a work of orthodox theology. Like I remember watching Kevin Smith's Dogma, um, which is like a horribly, like I don't know how I would watch it now without like you know losing my lunch. But at the time, I just remember being like, and it. it it's got all kinds of these weird things like the angel of death, you know, debating over whether or not it's okay to kill in the name of God. And it's just the slapstick, very strange thing. But I remember thinking at the time, you could never make a movie like this about Nazarenes, mm. you know, which is kind of the tradition I was in. And I thought there was something about that that was interesting to me. Um, but I've got a lightning round here. Uh, of sorts. I already showed my hand by showing you that I had 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 88, but I have four other books here, and I want to know, based on, like, your criteria, if these were in your collection, like, what would you do with them? Like, what would be what would be your, your plan for them? Do, are you guys ready for this? Sure. Let's do okay. it. Okay. I didn't warn you about this. At all. <laughs> we're going to start... We're going to start with... Uh, Spurgeon at his best. This is a collection of Spurgeon. It actually walks through the books of the Bible and takes Charles Spurgeon mini sermons related to like tons and tons of verses in the Bible. Of course, Spurgeon. Oh. Uh, yeah. So I know where know, my one answer of the most is. Most famous pastors. Right. In, so this uh, would be like Christian one of those history. Billy Graham books that I kept. You know, just outrageously good speaker. I'm surprised how many Catholics have never heard of him. Uh, but I would probably that would probably be a book that I keep and probably thumb through. Okay. Yep, I agree. I, I agree. Keep that one. Okay. Well, Solve easy. We're solving Matt's problems here. You're solving my problems. Um, okay. Next. We were talking about the anti-Catholic category, and this one causes like a serious dilemma for, for that question. So I believe the copyright on this is 1926 of the original owner. It was gifted to me July 27th, 1988, on my ninth birthday. Wow. Um, this is... Uh, an early edition of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Yeah. Which, as you know, includes a couple of things like uh, there's an aging giant named Pope mm. that shares a cave with another giant, a dead one called Peg, and then they just sit yeah. at the cave and gnash their teeth at Christian as he goes by. I believe. Um, yeah, good. Would you keep, my question is, would you, I mean, obviously I got to keep this copy, but if you had Pilgrim's Progress itself, what would you do with it? Andrew. Well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, we have read Pilgrim's Progress to our children. So that is a book that we like in our family. We have a nice, a really nice kind of more recent illustrated copy of it. And, uh, yeah, we point out the, the problems in it when we read it, but, uh, it's, it's a wonderful book. I like that book. So yeah, I would keep it. 
Yeah, same, especially if it was such a historical copy. Um, we're, we're a big fan of the Pilgrim's Progress in my house, not for all those theological or, uh, let's say, uh, those, those creative ways that they brought things in. But there's also an animated series. Uh, you can, I think you can find it online for free. And yeah, that's is, a fairly newer one, if I recall. Yeah, it's fantastic. The kids love it. We've watched it before they watched it. We, they, they ask for it. And, uh, you know, whenever the time is right, um, we, we pick apart those subjects that are problematic, but the animated one is, I, I can't think of a single issue with it. Yeah, I feel like that came out maybe four or five years ago. Uh, the, so I'm curious, Andrew, the, the animated, you know, the illustrated one that you use, is it called The Dangerous Journey? Oh, we do have that, yes. Yeah, I think we've, we've done that, and then we've done, like, a, another, like, sort of proper version of the real book, too. And maybe that's not illustrated, I don't know. I'll have to call my wife and ask her. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We. That's right. Yeah. That first one. The da- what is it called? The dangerous. The dangerous journey. journey. Yeah. Yeah. We. Yeah. Have it's that. beautifully illustrated. Um, yeah. What's interesting about that? Because we were having a discussion in the office. Because this is the kind of stuff we talk about in the office at the Coming Home Network. Um, so I believe Seth had a copy of the dangerous journey, and I had been I had mentioned in some other context this issue of Pope and Pagan, these two giants in the cave. Pagan's dead, and Pope just sits at the edge of the cave and just like gnaws his you know fingernails or whatever and he brought out the dangerous journey and looked and in the dangerous journey for whatever reason i think this came out in the 80s it says that there are two giants one is dead and has been for some time and the other one is pagan and he sits at the edge of the cave and gnaws his teeth so whoever did the the dangerous journey killed the pope Hmm. they killed the pope and they either did that because I don't, I'm not sure whether they were so anti-Catholic they wanted to just like talk about Catholicism as just completely dead, or they wanted to sell it to Catholics and didn't want to like. Or, or was it kind of like an evolutionary thing? Like they were maybe pointing out some sort of hyperbole, like, "Hey, the paganism is the natural result of of the death of yeah. Catholicism." I don't know. That's very guessing here. On a future episode of Coming Home Network presents. Uh, all right, so um, I got I got two more. This is a different kind of category, and actually, I'm I'm more interested in Andrew's thoughts on this, just because of who you are and and your particular theological track. Okay, I know there are many good books about church history, but I have kept my copy of Dermot McCullough's The Reformation. Uh. Um, have you messed around with this at all? I mean, it's kind of one of the. I mean, it's like eighty bajillion pages, but. He's not yeah, exactly a fan um, of the Catholic Church. No, no, he's not. I think that it's okay to hang on to that book. I think that you should put it on your shelf next to um, next to the stripping of the altars, though. Oh, um, Eamon Duffy's by Eamon Duffy. Yeah, so you can you can have those two next to each other, and you can have two different English or you know sort of British Isles Irish English uh, you know perspectives on uh, on the history of the Reformation in England in particular. And uh, yeah, there may be some good stuff in that, McCulloch. Um, his biography of Thomas Cranmer is a pretty worthwhile book. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, won't, it won't hurt to keep that around. Sean, do you have any historical books that you just were like, this is garbage history, or I got to keep this history, or like, I need it for a counterpoint? Was that, I think the have, historical was, books was are some of the, the best. I think the historical books are some of the best to keep for those references. And I was just looking over at my bookshelf here to make sure I had it. Uh, it's called Reformation Europe from Jansen. I think he is a Yale graduate 
or a Yale professor. And uh, that was one of the first introductions I had when I was earning my undergraduate degree. I had all those electives and I wanted to go after Bible and you know church history kind of electives. And I learned a tremendous amount of what the Reformation was from that side. And then, you know, ended up obviously learning about, hey, you know, there were other people in the Counter-Reformation who were actually doing what Martin Luther, you know, probably should have done. Um, but I keep that one on my bookshelf next to, you know, Hitchcock and uh, Weidenkopf and, you know, just because I think it's a tremendous reference to see, hey, how are these two situations juxtaposed, you know, according to these historians? Yeah, I find it valuable, too, for just historiography. Like, I, it's not just to me about how the history is told. It's about how a certain event is looked at by certain people in a certain era and how the next generation might look at that same event and write about it a little bit different. Um, so the histori- historiography is kind of interesting to me. Uh, you know, what is a, you know, a British guy who is in a sort of post-Christian England thinking about the Reformation, mm-hmm. you know, compared to what maybe an anti-Catholic, hardcore Church of England guy might have thought a century before, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. I see the value in that. I got one more. This is also in the apocalyptic category. Do I keep Hal Lindsey's book, The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon? <laughs> do I keep or do I chuck it? There's probably not a whole lot of value in there. I don't know. I'd probably read the back. It looks pretty thick now that you sh- showed us a side of you can, it. But... I'll let you read the back. It's black. It has no writing on it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Looks like might have had a dust jacket on at one point in time. Usually those Maybe books so. don't come with a ton of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> credibility is one word, but I mean, probably usefulness, you know, down the road. They, you know, those are, those arguments are, are so canned and those formulas that they use are, there's just so private revelation kind of, you know, erroneous private revelation kind of formulaic books. They, they don't hold a lot of value for me. Andrew. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's always a market for kind of apocalyptic prognosticating and that sort of thing. But I think that book would just, anyone would notice that that's just so passe. And I just, I don't think that it would pose a a major threat to anybody who's, you know, who had it in his hands. It's probably not worth that much on Abe's books either. You guys are so much more disciplined than me because I can't, I can't let go of this one. (laughs) It's part of my historiography bent. Like, I, I keep... I have a shocking amount of books that uh, are about the history of the end of the world. You need to write a book yeah, about so. it then, you know, and, and, and if you have such a collection, then you have all the notes in front of you to say, hey, look, now, you know, here's what the Catholic Church teaches, despite, you know, the temptation for, you know, the people on the other side of the pond to, like you said, prognosticate. I mean, there you have to admit, there is a serious temptation. I had it, too. We all had it as Protestants to think that now is the end times. You know, and we're called to live in such a way to do that, but probably not, you know, to the degree of, you know, saying it's going to be in 1988. Hey, the apocalypse sells, man. It kind of always has and always will. I mean, basically every new Netflix series is another post-apocalyptic uh, right. something. Yeah. Um, speak, speaking of which, uh, before I let you all go, I want to get people a chance to steer to your projects. And since you are the, uh, since we're talking about Netflix series on post-apocalyptic, you know, things. Andrew, I know you're doing a series uh, for Word on Fire that started up fairly recently on film. Tell us about it. Yeah, I'm doing a uh, 12-episode theological film commentary series. And actually, Matt, it draws in some respects on my evangelical past because each episode is meant to kind of focus on like a word or a theme, you know, almost like you were going to like a megachurch to hear a sermon series on like success or doubt or like something like that, you know, and then it's sort of like, you know, explained through certain books of scripture or something like that. 
only I'm using films. So each episode features anywhere from just one film up to like three or four films. And um, yeah, we just aired the second episode this past Monday, and the third one will be next Monday, right on through to the end. And then, uh, God willing, there'll be a future series beyond that. So yeah, if, if, if uh, any of your viewers are interested in film and theology and just kind of pop culture stuff, I'd encourage them to check us out at the Word on Fire Institute YouTube channel. It's Watch With Me is the name of that, right? Yeah, Watch With Me. I should say the name of the, the show. Yeah, Watch With Me. Well, I mean, I, I'm the branding guy for, for my Thank organization. You. I got to... I'm doing free work for you guys. Do we free work for Bishop Barron there? Uh, and then uh, Sean, uh, if people want to find your stuff because you've uh, you've written a you've written a whole bunch of things in a whole bunch of different places. Yeah, my my work is probably not as exciting as Andrew's. There, I'm still waiting on my call from Word on Fire. There, um, no, I I just finished a book with OSV. It's called All Things Catholic. It's like a guide A to Z, and we're in that. It, it follows some of my other work where I'm reaching out to those probably in RCIA or wanting to get back into their faith, and they're wondering about a plethora of topics. And so in that book, I explain, you know, here's the you know the five W's, you know, who, what, where, why, and then I offer practical, you know, Catholic tips. Um, from a seasoned veteran, right, of, uh, you know, things that we might stumble with, like Marian devotion or just apparitions or things like that. Very cool. Very cool. Andrew Pettiprin, Sean McAfee. I encourage people to go check out your Journey Home episodes because you've both been guests on the program, and you can find those at chnetwork.org. And again, if you're wrestling with any of these issues and uh, maybe you saw yourself in, in our dilemmas... Um, and you're looking for more community, please uh, check out our online community. That's community.chnetwork.org. We would love to hear from you. We are all about helping people who are at any stage of inquiry uh, related to the Catholic faith. And uh, we're going to be easy on you because we've all been through a lot of weird stuff on our own journeys. So in the meantime, Sean, Andrew, thank you so much for being willing to be part of my experiment. And uh, I'll get rid of the Hal Lindsey book as soon as this, this taping is over. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Matt.